For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Over 60 turkey vultures fell from the sky and into the ocean along the Florida Keys last week, igniting a multi-agency rescue effort and sparking theories among residents of military technology and alien interference. Thanks to Daniel Parabach for sending this one in. Turkey vultures are large, black, red-headed birds that feed on dead animals. If you live in North or South America, you've probably seen them gathered around a carcass or sitting on a dead tree. They shouldn't be confused with the Indian vulture, which was the inspiration for the Beatles Quartet in Jungle Book. We're friends with every creature coming down the pike. In fact, we've never met an animal we didn't like. Anyway, vultures aren't waterfowl, so scientists at the Dolphin Research Center were confused when they discovered a vulture flapping around in the ocean along the Middle Keys. They called the Marathon Wild Bird Center, who told them that when there's one vulture in the water, there are usually more. Sure enough, the dolphin researchers spent what I'm sure was an unusual day floating around and scooping up the floundering vultures. They rescued about 30, and the remaining birds were rescued by officers with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission and local fishermen, according to the Miami Herald. All but seven of the birds recovered and were released back into the wild. At this point, you're probably wondering, how did a whole flock of vultures end up in the ocean? Vultures don't feed on dead animals in the water, but they do migrate. Some vultures don't migrate at all, but some travel thousands of miles every year. One bird biologist told the Miami Herald that the population in the Florida Keys is migratory, so they think the birds just got tired and were forced to land in the ocean. If the birds get too cold or too wet, they can't get out of the water, which is how you end up with 
60 tired, bedraggled, turkey-headed balls of feathers in the Gulf of Mexico. Or as Daniel told me, local residents think the military or aliens are more likely to blame. The Navy has a big air station on Key West, and between Chinese spy balloons and UAEs, the skies are more dangerous than ever before. This week, we've got legislation, venom, grizz, and so much more, but first I want to talk to you about my week. And my week was super interesting. I was able to sit in on a bunch of mule deer migration talk with the mule deer working group down in Salt Lake City, courtesy of the Mule Deer Foundation. Secretarial Order 3362, issued by then-Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke, instructed state and federal agencies to work together on mapping, protecting, and preserving migration corridors. If you have ever checked out the migrationinitiative.org, you'll be amazed by the distances animals travel on a yearly basis and how many fences, bureaucracies, roads, agencies, municipalities, sovereign nations they cross to do that. Why is this important? Well, because it forces us to look at ecosystems or landscapes as a whole. Mule deer winter ground can be very different than summer ground, and what's the point of preserving summer ground if the mule deer are in their winter ground and they can't get back to their summer ground? You get it. It's like uh, showing up to an Airbnb and it's uh, already full. Kinda. Super cool to point out that even though this work started under a previous Republican-led administration, It is continuing under the current Democratic leadership. That's called bipartisanship. Everyone loves to point out how different the Biden and Trump administrations are, but they have migration corridors in common. And they both keep their classified documents in the same place. Another super fun side trip that happened this week, I was able to ride along with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks as they patrolled the ongoing bison hunts on the edge of Yellowstone National Park. These hunts can be slow, unless you drew a tag this year. Big snows have gotten the bison migration moving earlier and in larger numbers. Also, the park bison population is at an all-time high of around 6,000 animals, so it's a good year to have a bison tag in your pocket. During my half a day of riding along, I watched a state hunter fill a tag on a bull and watched several tribal members working on butchering animals in the field. The hunt in the area, just north of Gardner, is very constricted, Geographically, there is plenty of country, but the bison like to move through a very small portion of real estate. The warden I rode with explained that about 95% of animals are harvested in one zone, which I would estimate to be under 60 acres. The bison have access to tens of thousands of acres, but that's where they congregate, so that's where the hunters congregate. If you were thinking of some sort of uh, like dances with wolves type scenario bison hunt, you're going to be real disappointed. The point, in fact, is efficiently reducing herd size and preventing bison from moving beyond the management zone where they could mingle with domestic cattle, posing both a disease threat and a threat to winter forage. I thought it was really cool to see. This is a meat hunt, and I witnessed a lot of meat being packed and carted away. Bison are highly regulated. There were tribal game wardens, state game wardens, park wardens, and since bison migrate out of the park in several different states, Harvest numbers are shared through the interagency bison management team, and those numbers are kept up to date every day. One thing that really made a lot of sense while I was watching the show this morning, I think tribes should be able to hunt inside Yellowstone National Park. A, you know, well-regulated hunt modeled for sustainability, for sure, but allowing tribal members to hunt inside the park would spread out the hunting pressure 
and probably move more of these big grazers out into spots where state hunters, as in hunters who participate in the state tag allocation system, can get to them. I'd love to see this happen. Maybe our current Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, is the one to do it. Moving on to the legislative desk. In Minnesota, SF314 would eliminate the shotgun-only zone for whitetail deer and allow centerfire rifles to be used throughout the state. As of this recording, that bill is still sitting in the Environment, Climate, and Legacy Committee. HF40 would allow portable tree stands to be left overnight on state land in certain circumstances, and HF605 would require the Game and Fish Commission to create an open season for wolves if the species is not listed under the Endangered Species Act. Current law allows the commission to open a hunting season, but this bill would require it. To weigh in on any of these bills, get in touch with your Minnesota state representatives. Down in Kansas, HB 2079 gives lifetime hunting license holders a free any-season whitetail deer permit with the option of purchasing one additional any-season whitetail deer permit for the same calendar year. Those who hold a non-lifetime hunting license would only be offered one free antlerless whitetail deer permit. This bill would also move the opening day of whitetail rifle season back to the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. This would, as Kansas bow hunter Jacob Helliker told me, allow rifle hunters a shot at primetime rut in the legendary Kansas whitetail woods. Helliker isn't a fan of the bill, and I imagine most bow hunters would uh, also not be a fan of this. If you're a rifle hunter who wants to see the season moved back, or a bow hunter who does not, you both need to get in touch with your Kansas legislators today. Over in Wyoming, legislators are considering a bill that would crack down on landowners who post fake no-trespassing signs on public land, House Bill 147 would categorize such behavior as hunter interference, which comes with a maximum $10,000 fine for the first offense and fifty dollars for every subsequent conviction. That sucker's got some teeth. The bill has already passed the House on a nearly unanimous 61-to-1 vote and is currently being considered by a Senate committee. Up in Vermont, Tyler Brown wrote in to tell me about a bill that would ban recreational trapping in the state. H191 would prohibit the trapping of fur-bearing animals unless the person trapping is authorized to trap in order to defend property or agricultural crops or the trapping is conducted by a licensed nuisance wildlife control operator. This bill has not yet been assigned to a committee. Makes you wonder if rats and mice have fur. Over in Iowa. Senate File 138 would allow hunters to use airbows to target whitetail during firearm season. Airbows, for those unfamiliar, are high-powered air rifles that shoot arrows instead of pellets or BBs. They're like that thing that you came up with in the backyard and your parents yelled at you for it. For an overview of these products and the state of the industry, check out the article by Jordan Sillers at TheMeatEater.com. Over in Utah, HB 222 would allow year-round bison hunting outside the state's bison management areas. These include the Henry Mountains, Antelope Island, the Book Cliffs, and the Ute Indian Tribes Reservation lands on the East Tavaputs Plateau. As wild animals tend to do, bison have been wandering off these management areas and onto private grazing land. Ranchers aren't thrilled about bison competing with their cattle for food, so Representative Christine F. Watkins proposed this legislation to encourage the animals away from private land. 
proposing a year-round hunting season on America's most iconic animal didn't sit well with the House Natural Resources, Agriculture, and Environment Committee. They voted to hold the legislation, which likely means it's done for the year, but Western state residents should keep their eye out for other bison-related bills in their legislatures. At the federal level, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill that would force the White House to make more federal land available for oil and gas development if the president orders the withdrawal of more oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. President Biden has been pulling record amounts from this reserve to keep gas prices down, but critics say we should increase drilling rather than drain the reserve. This bill would require that the percentage of federal lands and waters open to leasing be the same as the percentage of oil drawn from the reserve, with a limit of 10%. So to be clear, if the president sells 10% of the petroleum reserve, the White House would have to make 10% of federal land available for drilling. If that trade strikes you as fair, well, I have a bridge in Brooklyn I'm going to sell you. All Republicans and one Democrat voted for the legislation, which tells you pretty much everything you need to know about its chances of passing the Democrat-controlled Senate. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about family finances 101? No one? Me neither. Like the importance of a will or a college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Life insurance is important to me because I don't want to be a burden on anyone ever, especially when I'm dead and I can't chip in to, you know, lift heavy things and do stuff like that. That's why I have life insurance. And I know you don't want to be a pain in the ass because you're listening to my podcast. So get life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash cal policies issued by western southern life assurance company not available in certain states prices subject to underwriting and health questions for all you elk hunters out there chasing turkeys is basically the same thing i know the reaction you just gave me but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without on x the hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground but i use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it 
you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Moving on to the pit mining desk. The Berkeley pit in Butte, America hasn't been an operational copper mine since 1982, but it's still wreaking havoc on local wildlife. Thanks to Sean O'Keefe for sending this one in. When the pumps to the open pit copper mine were shut off nearly four decades ago, groundwater began to seep in and created sulfuric acid that leached metals out of the rock. The 700-acre lake now has an acidity level of 2.5 pH, which is about the same acidity as Coca-Cola lemon juice, or gastric acid. The lake also contains copper, cadmium, and arsenic. This combination of chemicals and acidity is so dangerous, birds that land on the lake for more than a few hours could be cooked from the inside out. So, local volunteers and wildlife biologists use hazing methods to try to keep the birds off the lake. These include drones, fireworks, lasers, and a sonic cannon. During migration seasons, volunteers are in the area at least once an hour to watch over the birds, which include snow geese, avocets, and grebes. They have good reason to be vigilant. In 2016, an estimated 60,000 snow geese landed on the pit, and about 3,000 of them died. You may have heard of the Berkeley pit, but I wanted to mention it to make everyone even more grateful that the EPA just blocked the pebble mine up in Bristol Bay, Alaska. The pebble mine would have been an open pit copper mine, and it would have been constructed at the headwaters of the world's largest sockeye salmon run. The Bristol Bay watershed produces half of the world's sockeye salmon, which helps maintain the productivity of the entire ecosystem. This includes numerous other fish and wildlife species like brown bears, rainbow trout, bald eagles, dolly varden, and arctic grayling. The EPA estimated that the pebble mine would have destroyed 8.5 miles of anadromous fish streams. It also would have destroyed 91 miles of additional streams and 2,108 acres of wetlands and other waters that support anadromous fish. I briefly mentioned the EPA's decision last week, but today I have more details. Meat Eater spoke with John Gale, BHA's Vice President of Policy and Government Relations. We asked him how permanent the EPA's decision would be, will it survive lawsuits and future presidential administrations. He explained that the mechanism the EPA used, something called a 404C veto under the Clean Water Act, is very durable. The agency has only used this veto power 13 times since 1980, and none of those vetoes have been overturned or overruled. It is not bulletproof, but it is very durable. Never in the history of EPA's use of that tool has a decision ever been overturned. They've used it incredibly judiciously, and the fact that they've only used it a couple times before give us some encouragement that this is going to have some resilience to it, and it's going to be enduring. The Trump administration did attempt to revoke the 404C veto of Yazoo Pumps, a proposed hydraulic pump plant in Mississippi, but those efforts were unsuccessful. The only true permanent protection for Bristol Bay would be for Congress to pass a bill authorizing those protections, but this decision by the EPA is the best alternative. A big congratulations goes out to everyone who spoke up and decided to get involved in this fight. 
whether you wrote a letter to your congressman or senator, donated money to a conservation group, or just shared an article about Bristol Bay on social media, you had a hand in conserving this amazing chunk of southwest Alaska. But the fight isn't over yet. Gale encourages hunters, anglers, and public land lovers to pay attention, do their homework, and be on the lookout for that bill to permanently protect Bristol Bay. Make sure that they talk to their members of Congress and say, this is a special place to us. And you know, if, if a bill ever does come to bear that protects and adds extra durability to Bristol Bay in perpetuity, then we would hope they would want to help us push that through the congressional process. Just because you don't live in Alaska doesn't mean that you can't make a difference. Moving on to the snake desk. Many of you know that Dole Snorticus nearly died last year after being bitten by a rattlesnake. At the time, I learned that most anti-venom works on a vaccine model of prompting the body to create antibodies using harmless versions of venom molecules. Some dog trainers will even use anti-venom in advance to vaccinate their dogs against snake bites. If you want to deep dive into venom and anti-venom, check out episode 125. Anyway, that experience piqued my interest in anti-venom which is why I was curious when listener Carl Kaufman sent me a new paper from researchers at the University of Maryland. They claim to have discovered a single protein called FETUA-3 that inhibits a broad spectrum of rattlesnake venom toxins. Researchers discovered this protein by studying the western diamondback rattlesnake, aka Crotalus atrox. This species has more venom toxins encoded in its genome than any other known rattlesnake. A good snake bite treatment needs to be able to counteract the venoms of more than just one species of snake. You don't always know the species that bit you. When Snort got bit, I wasn't eager to go hunting for an aggressive venomous snake. I got a good look at it, definitely identified it as a rattlesnake, but that was about it. There are too many species for hospitals to have a specific anti-venom for each one. This protein inhibited over 20 toxins, which was nearly all the toxins in the western rattlesnake's venom. It also bound to and inhibited the toxins of venoms from several other rattlesnakes, which makes it a great candidate for future research. One of the researchers said, quote, Many current treatments using antiquated technologies and antivenoms have drawbacks, including variation in or lack of potency, impurities that trigger side effects, and manufacturing inconsistency. They're hoping that a new treatment based on these proteins, as opposed to the vaccine-style antivenom, will be even more effective and won't come with those drawbacks. On behalf of Snort and every other animal that enjoys rambling through the backcountry, I hope they're successful. (laughs) Moving on to the bear desk. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has accepted requests from Montana and Wyoming to consider removing the grizzly bear from protection under the Endangered Species Act. The petitions asked to delist grizzlies in the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem and the Northern Continental Divide Ecosystem. The GYE is centered on Yellowstone National Park, while the NCDE extends from Glacier National Park through the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex. If you feel like grizzlies have been listed and delisted multiple times over the last decade or so, you're right. This is a bit like that football scene in a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. Grizzlies have been delisted in the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem twice, in 2007 and 2017. States have prepared bear management plans and bear hunts, only to have the courts step in and reverse course. Just like Lucy set up the football yet again, and then, you know, Charlie's got to make a choice to go after it. 
Supporters of delisting argue that the populations have risen sufficiently to remove them from the endangered species list. In 2021, there were an estimated 1,000 bears in the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem and 700 in the Yellowstone ecosystem. This is a far cry from the estimated 50,000 bears that once roamed the lower 48, but the populations are stable and healthy. I'm also not sure anyone, including animal rights activists, would want 50,000 grizzlies between California and Kansas. Just ask the Coloradans who voted to reintroduce gray wolves. Anyway, opponents of the delisting argue that the grizzly population is still threatened, and they accuse the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service of caving to, quote, trophy hunters and the livestock industry. That's according to Andrea Zaccardi, legal director of the Center for Biological Diversity's Carnivore Conservation Program. Just because the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has accepted these requests doesn't mean grizzlies are about to be delisted. But the service did say that petitions present, quote, substantial information indicating the grizzly bear populations in these two regions may warrant removal from the list of endangered and threatened wildlife. Only time will tell whether this latest delisting campaign survives in court, but I'll keep you updated as Charlie Brown charges towards the football once again. I'd like to throw in a little sidebar here and remind all of our listeners that there are many species that are managed by the states that you cannot hunt. There are many species managed by the state that you can only hunt in certain regions. This is a par for the course thing for states. It's nothing crazy. We'll get management back at some point. It doesn't mean we're going to immediately start hunting grizzly bears when we do, but I certainly want a future where we can hunt grizz in my own home state of Montana. Moving on to the mailbag desk. Matt Simchik, a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota, wrote in with some fantastic information about forever chemicals. You may remember a few episodes back when we covered a recent study that found concerning levels of these chemicals in freshwater fish. Professor Simchik has been studying forever chemicals for over 20 years, and he wrote in with a few points of clarification. Until recently, scientists have considered drinking water as the major source of exposure to forever chemicals. But this recent study brings to light another important route of exposure, and Professor Simchik believes those who eat a lot of fish from the Great Lakes should be careful. He specifically mentioned the Hmong American community in Minnesota, who eat a ton of fish and farm on land contaminated by these chemicals. Professor Simchik also pointed out that although his lab has seen effects in wildlife and even bacteria from these chemicals, research to date has shown little definitive human health effects of forever chemicals on adults. That's good news. However, we do know that forever chemicals affect the fat in our blood, and that fat is really important to fetal development. This, he says, is the largest gap in our knowledge of human health effects. Quote, My fear is that if and when we do see concrete evidence in humans, it will be in children who were exposed in utero or in early childhood to these chemicals. Therefore, it's my opinion that women of childbearing age, pregnant women, and children are the ones who should take the greatest care in eliminating as much exposure as possible. And I know what you're thinking. First, it's cigarettes and alcohol. Now it's fish. Pregnant ladies can't get a break. So there you go. You don't have to stop eating freshwater fish, but if you live in the Great Lakes region, it might be a good idea to limit the amount of fish you consume, especially if you're pregnant or planning to be. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. As per usual, write in 
to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at themeateater.com. And let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. Also, if that wood pile's getting low from these Arctic blasts we've been getting, check out www.steeldealers.com to find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They're going to get you set up with a ripping chainsaw, either gas-powered or electric. It's going to buck up that wood faster than you. She's not going to clog up or bog down, and it'll be ready for you the next time you want to use it. They're going to get you set up with what you need, and they won't try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks again. I'll talk to you next week. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance Axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.